Well, good morning. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles. Uh, We're going to be starting in Romans chapter 9 and uh, verse 24. We're going to make our way uh, into Romans 10. And uh, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you are probably aware it's been a a heavy kind of few weeks uh, talking about some very challenging topics. And uh, to be honest today, I'm a little surprised that all of you came back, but I guess you were predestined to, to be here. So... Thank you very much. Um, well, in our passage today, uh, Romans 9:24 through Romans 10:4, Paul is taking us to the heart of the fundamental mistake that many people make about Jesus and about real Christianity. Maybe you're here today, maybe you're wondering, well, what makes Christianity so different from all of the other belief systems that are out there? Or maybe You've been a professing Christian your whole life and you continually struggle with with guilt, like all the time, wondering always, like, am I missing it? Am Am I doing it the right way? Am I doing enough? Or maybe you thought... I'm just not really sure where I am with Jesus, and, but, uh, but I'm trying sincerely to do the best that I can. And isn't that enough? Or... Maybe you're just stuck spiritually. Maybe you're here today and you feel like you're just caught on this treadmill of performing and doing and trying and and working and you don't know really how to get out of it and you feel like you just don't have the joy that you think you should have. Well, if any of those things resonate with you, then I think today's passage might really help you because Paul is really talking about salvation, what it means to be saved. And he's talking about the various realities that are surrounding salvation as he continues to unpack uh, his message to these Roman believers. So today what we're going to do is take a look at three truths about salvation. And just to remind you where we have been coming from to set this in context, uh, in Romans 9, we have been seeing together how Paul explains God's sovereignty over salvation and thinking through words like election and predestination. But as we move into Romans 10 and then into Romans 11, what you're going to see is that it's almost like Paul is taking the, the diamond of salvation and he's turning it around and he's showing us some different facets of it. And as he does that, he begins to focus more on our human responsibility our responsibility to proclaim the gospel and to respond to the gospel all while he is magnifying God's good and gracious sovereignty. So let's pick up where we left off last week. And the first truth, if you're uh, writing notes down, is this. God's salvation, Paul tells us, is as wide as the whole world. Now, at the end of last week, I I told you that these verses were telling us that God's mercy was far greater than you've ever dreamed. And it's really kind of the same thing. Let me show you uh, what Paul is telling us here. And we'll start verses 24 to 26. Paul writes, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Now look carefully again at verse 24. And maybe you notice that simple yet profound word called, called. 
we have seen this word already a number of times in Romans. And, and this word, you need to understand, is not the usual, um, I called home or like I called mom. Paul, by using this word, is referring to what theologians describe as God's effectual call. The call of God that creates faith in those God calls. In Romans 8, 28, that familiar verse, Paul said, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called. Two verses later, Romans 8, 30, Paul says, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. And then a few weeks ago, we saw this word in Romans 9, 11, where Paul said that God's election is not because of works, but because of him who calls, calls. And then here, verse 24, even us whom he has called. See, God is sovereign in his rule of the world, and that includes how he calls undeserving sinners from out of his just judgment. God calls his people, and he calls us out of rebellion, out of spiritual death and spiritual darkness and spiritual blindness. And God's call, when he issues this call, is it a weak call? Is it impotent? Does God make this call and wonder if anyone's going to pick up on the other end? And the answer, of course, is no, because God's call is effectual, which means that call creates faith in those who are called. And now again, as we've been saying, the call of God doesn't rob people of their ability to choose him. But what is happening is that he is rescuing people who will never choose him on their own. And so this means if you are in Christ by faith, it is not ultimately, not decisively your doing, but it is his because he first called you. And when you get this, you'll understand it is amazing. I want you to think about it. I want you just to ponder this. You, if you are in Christ, you have been called by the living God of the universe. You have been called. He called you and your response of faith was just that. It was a mere response. This is what we have been talking about the last few weeks. And I didn't want to pass this by. I wanted to make sure you were seeing it because God's call is so amazing. God's call is meant to humble us to the depths because we realize in that call that it is all up to him. And at the same time, God's call is meant to thrill us to the heights because we realize he called me of all people. Like, what? God's call is amazing. And, and Paul is pointing this out here because what he's doing is highlighting that God calls all people everywhere. It's as wide as the whole world. He calls not only Jews, he also calls Gentiles. It's like surprise because they weren't expecting that. This was a stunning thing for those people in that day. If you go back to the old covenant, you will see that God's focus was on Israel as his people. But, but we see if, as we read the Old Testament carefully, that focus was only temporary. And in fact, we learn that reality all the way back in Genesis 12 when God first issued his call to Abraham, who was the father of his people. 
You could read that chapter and you will see that God told Abraham that he was calling him and his descendants so that through them all of the families of the earth would be blessed. That was why God was calling him. In other words, God's purposes were always ultimately global. Now Jesus comes in the New Testament and he confirms this among other places in his great commission. And then just shortly after that, on the day of Pentecost, when the church was born, uh, by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, God began effectually calling Gentiles into true Israel. And he did that from nations everywhere. You can check this out for yourself. Acts chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Now, this is a major turning point here in Romans. Because in verses 24, 25, all the way to 29, Paul is showing his readers how the Old Testament spoke of this future inclusion of the nations uh, into God's people along with a remnant of Jews. In other words, this is not anything new. In other words, this is what God has been saying from the very beginning. In other words, God is just fulfilling his promises here. Now, Paul does this by uh, quoting two passages from the Old Testament prophet Hosea, uh, Hosea 2.23, Hosea 1.10, if you want to look it up sometime. And here's the story of Hosea that is behind what he's, he's talking about. God made his prophet Hosea and his family to be a living parable that showed how God saw his people Israel. God told them to call one child. Uh, So first of all, God called uh, Hosea to marry a a woman who was not a faithful woman. And he he did that because his people, Israel, they were rebellious. They were unclean. They were unbelieving as a nation. And so God says, Hosea, you go marry a woman who is all of those things. And after they were married, God continued this. And he told Hosea to give names to their children which showed how God saw his people. God told them to call one child not loved or no mercy. I'm not going to ask you how many of you don't like one of the names you've been given. You know, just think about that. Some of you don't really like your name. I don't think anybody here has a name as bad as not loved. Not loved Jones. Not loved Smith. No mercy Williams. I mean, think about that. That's, that's the name that they were given. This is a living parable of God's judgment on Israel's rebellion. And they have another child, and God tells them to name this child, not my people. Anybody have a worse name than that? I, I don't think so. And, and God did this because God no longer was considering them his people. And yet, at the very same time that this judgment was being given, God was also promising that he would eventually reverse course at some point in the future that one day not loved would be loved. That one day not my people would get a new name and would be called child of the living God. Now what Paul is doing here is he's applying this to the nations, to the Gentiles. That's kind of the secondary level of prophetic fulfillment, which often happens with biblical prophecy. And here's what you need to understand. Paul is saying, if God has mercy on those who are not loved, on those who are not my people, then that means anyone can get in on this. Anyone can get in on this. You see, if anyone 
was seen as not loved and not my people, as outsiders uh, to the covenants and promises of God in the Old Testament. It was the Gentiles. It was the unbelieving nations. And so while this was immediately spoken to rebellious Israel, it was ultimately spoken to the nations who are not my people. See, that's what Paul is making a connection with here. And it is, again, so powerful because it is telling us that in Jesus, God is now mercifully welcoming all the nations. No longer is not loved. No longer is not my people, but as loved, as loved people, children of the living God. They too are part of God's true people, true Israel. See, this means that what we are about here, what we are doing here as Jesus Church, it means that, that this is the arena in which God's promises in the Old Testament are now being fu- fulfilled. The Old Testament was looking forward to this day, the day when Jews and Gentiles would come together and be considered the one true people of God, the one true Israel. And it is still unfolding, still working itself out to this day right now. And among other things, that means this. If you are here today, and some of you are, and you have come and you feel far from God, you, you feel maybe like my name is not loved, my name is not my people, then this is here to give you hope. This is here for you. See, Romans, along with the rest of the scriptures, shows us that there is nothing naturally lovely about us. There is nothing in us by our nature that would make us attractive to God. I don't care what it says on Instagram. I don't care how many TikTok videos you watch that that tell you that. There is nothing in us, in our nature, that's naturally attractive to God. But the Bible tells us that God, in his mercy, through faith in Jesus, he changes our name. He changes our name. He makes us his people, which means there is hope for everyone. And do you understand how different this is than what the vast majority of people think Christianity is? This is why Jesus came. And it is everywhere in the Gospels. Just think of the stories that you read in the Gospels. Jesus came for not my people. Jesus came for those who felt like they were not loved. He came for guilty, shame-filled, desperate, and depressed outcasts and strangers. That's why during Jesus' earthly ministry, all of the outsiders, all of the people who didn't fit in, the misfits, all the people who knew they had blown it and had no way to make it back, They were all attracted to Jesus and they hung around Jesus. And it was also why all of the self-righteous hypocrites who thought that they were better than everyone else, who thought that they could earn their way back to God, it's why they were repelled by Jesus. It is why they ultimately killed him. Because Jesus came for those who were not loved, those who were not my people. Jesus came, just think about it. He came for the immoral and the addicted. He came for the adulterers and the abusers and the angry. He he came for the depressed and the divorced and those who think they're just too dirty. He came for the liars 
and for the lust field. He came for the sufferers and for the single mothers. He came for the white collar and the blue collar and the no collar. He came for the poor and the rich. He came for all who would hear him. And he says to everyone who will listen, I have a new name for you. You may think you're not loved, but I am telling you, I love you. You may think you don't belong anywhere. You're not my people, but I have a name for you. How about this? You're a child of God, a child of God. How about this? Adopted. How about this name? Chosen and precious. Jesus came and he says to all who will listen, if you repent and if you believe, then you can take your new name. And I'm telling you today, friends, there is no better news anywhere in all the universe. We have a new name. And this all means that anybody can get in on this. Anybody, no exceptions. I mean, even the Raider fans can get in on this. I'm telling you. Anybody, anywhere, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no, no matter what's been done to you, no matter how far away you feel, no matter how deep down you think you have fallen in your life, it doesn't matter. Gentiles everywhere, the nations everywhere, Paul says, are being called and drawn into the true people of God. Because in Christ, you and I can become part of God's true Israel. In Christ, we, any of us, can enter into God's redemptive purposes in human history, the plans and the stories that he is unfolding and working out since before the foundations of the world. That's the connection Paul is making. Everyone is now included. The door is wide open. This salvation is for the whole world. Alongside of that, if you keep reading in verses 27 to 29, it shows that at this present time, only a remnant of Israel is getting in on this gospel. Now, it's available to them. Paul is not saying it isn't. The door still stands wide open to them. They too just need to repent and believe. And one day... Paul's going to tell us when we get to Romans 11, they're, they're going to do that. They will. But here's what he says is happening right now. Verse 27, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So this is a surprise in both directions. The Jews thought they were all included just because they were Jews. The Gentiles, the nations thought they were all excluded just because they were Gentiles. And so when you see this, you understand what God is doing here. God is at the same time rebuking proud presumption while at the same time he's giving hope to the hopeless, the people who will turn to him in faith. Doesn't that sound just like God? He's so very good. And that just leads right into the second truth that Paul is showing us about salvation. This is in verses 30 to 33. Paul says that pride keeps us from experiencing God's salvation. Pride keeps us from experiencing God's salvation. Now, Paul is continuing as we move into these verses to shift his focus uh, from God's sovereign work to create his chosen people from what God does in salvation to 
what God calls people to do in response. And, and just to keep in mind, remember verse 9, uh, or, or chapter 9, it says earlier, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And then next week we're going to see in Romans 10 that it also says, with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And both are equally true. And in turning his focus to human responsibility, Paul is kind of highlighting the irony that the people most likely to achieve righteousness missed it, while the people most likely to miss righteousness received it. So how did that happen? Well, verses 30 and 31, to kind of set up this stunning contrast, Paul writes this, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. So the Gentiles, they were known for unrighteousness. While the Israelites were known for righteousness, the Gentiles were seen as immoral and lawless and uh, outsiders to the plans and purposes of God. They didn't have God's law to guide their lives. By contrast, Israel had the law. They had God's guide for how to live. They had a God-given mission in life, which was to be a light to the world, to, to draw all the nations to see the beauty and the glory of God, and, and then to be welcomed into God's people. But that did not happen. Why? What happened instead? Paul gives a hint in verse 30 when he says, the Gentiles attained a righteousness that is by faith. So he's setting up a contrast, not just between Gentiles and, 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 the, and Israel, but between a works-based and a faith-based righteousness. And Paul makes that crystal clear in verses 32 and 33. He writes, why? Because... They did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. He says in verse, uh, the rest of the verse, they are, have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Why did this happen? Here's exactly why. Because they based their righteousness on works not on faith. See, I wonder if anyone here right now in their life is basing their sense of righteousness on their works. That's the question that Paul's putting before us. What happened with the, the Jewish people is this law that God gave them, this law that was supposed to bend them to their knees before God in the worship of God to cause them to look to God as their only savior, only refuge, only strength, instead got turned around into a way that they could make much of themselves. Instead of using God's law as a lens through which they could see God more clearly, they made the law a mirror in which they could look at themselves and they could tell themselves how good they were, how righteous they were. Instead of using the law to point to God, they used it to point to themselves. And Paul drives this home by using an Old Testament reference from Isaiah. He puts together uh, verses from Isaiah 8 and, and Isaiah 28, and he says that they stumbled over the stumbling stone. 
Peter tells us in his first letter that the stumbling stone is Jesus Christ. And so the idea that, that Paul is telling us here is that the Jews who, instead of putting their trust in Christ, they, they ended up putting it in themselves and therefore they missed the Messiah. They put their hope in their own righteousness, their own works. They, they used the law to make themselves feel better, to tell themselves that they were indeed righteous when in reality they weren't. So there's kind of this ironic twist here and it's this it's that the most righteous people on earth were in fact not righteous although they thought they were righteous when the most unrighteous people in the world uh, became righteous because they didn't pursue righteousness like the righteous people were pursuing it does that make sense i mean it did to me that's what we're, we're seeing today so how does it apply well I think it applies in many ways, but let me just give you this one. I think one of the applications is for people, many of us in the room, including myself, who were blessed to grow up in a godly home, who were blessed with godly parents, parents who nurtured us spiritually, who discipled us to be like Jesus Christ. If that's you, then maybe like me, you need to be reminded today that a spiritual heritage is not enough. Maybe you need to be reminded, some of us, that living a moral life is not enough. Going to church is not enough. Voting for the right party, whatever you think that is, is not enough. Being a good person is not enough. We, we have some teenagers in the room. Maybe some of you who are teenagers, maybe you think you're good with God because your parents love Jesus. But that's not enough. See, the question for all of us, whoever we are, is have you surrendered your life to Jesus? You see, all of those other things that I've been alluding to, that, that, that is all just a works-based righteousness, and that it isn't good for anything except to send self-deceived people into an eternity without Christ. That's all it's good for. See, pride can keep us from experiencing God's salvation Paul goes on and gives us a third truth. And in this third truth, which is related to pride, there's a couple other things that he, he shows us. And I'm going to phrase it like this. If you're writing notes, you can take this down. He says, we never find God's salvation by self-righteousness or sincerity. This is what we see in Romans 10, verses 1 through 4. And I want to kind of take it one verse at a time. Verse 1 says this, brothers... My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. A couple of things I want to note here. And the first one is this. It's the gravity of what's at stake. And what's the gravity that's at stake? Here's the seriousness of it. It's salvation. Salvation is at stake. That's what Paul's talking about. Paul says we need to be saved. Paul says everyone needs to be saved, not just unbelieving Israel. This is true for everyone. And I want to highlight this because if you haven't gotten there already, I want you to go there right now. This is so offensive in our current cultural climate. No one thinks in, in this uh, culture in which we live that idolizes individual freedom, this culture that elevates emotion above reason, no one thinks they need to be saved. In fact, 
You can do a fun experiment tomorrow when you're at work, maybe at lunch, I don't know, maybe when you're just in the cubicle talking to someone else. Ask that person, whoever it is you're talking to, are you saved? Just see what happens. It might be interesting. You might find someone who is not really happy that you suggested that they have that need to be saved. Our culture doesn't think that we should be accountable to anyone. Our culture doesn't think that anyone should be able to tell us there's anything wrong with us. That's called being oppressive, right? You can't say that. But here, through God's word, Jesus is lovingly confronting us. He's leaning in on us with this, this word, and he's saying to each of us, you need to be saved. You need to be saved. We all need to be saved. And you know, here's the thing. I, I, I think that when we get honest with ourselves, we all know this. We all know this. We, we, we feel it in our bones. And see, this world, we look around and we all know this world is not what it should be. We all know that we are not what we should be. We do things we regret We don't do things we know we should do. We desire things we know we shouldn't. We say things that we know hurt others. We excuse ourselves for the wrong things we have done while we criticize others hypocritically for the wrong things they have done. Anybody ever do that in your life? Please raise your hand right now. Otherwise, you're telling a lie. You're in church. We all do that. Amen? We all do that. And we know we shouldn't, but we still do it. And so we, we live with this sense of guilt, but we don't know what to do with the guilt. And the world and our culture keeps telling us, you're fine, you're fine, you're a good person, you're a good person, and yet it doesn't quite ring true. We know that something is wrong. So what do we do? Well, we, we do what we have to do. We try to cope, Right? We think things like, well, maybe I need a new job or maybe I need to move to a new city or maybe I need to get a new car. Maybe I need a new boyfriend or a new girlfriend. Maybe I need a new spouse. That will do it. Maybe I need more education or maybe I need to travel more this year. Maybe I know I need to lose some weight. Maybe I need to find a new social justice cause. Or maybe I just... I just need to somehow figure out how to kick this old habit, that one habit, that's what's holding me back. Then I'll be okay. But the guilt remains. That sense of unease in our soul remains. And so most of us, we do what most Americans do. We just stay busy so we don't have to think about it, right? TV's always on. Music's always playing. Nobody wants to get quiet because if you get quiet, you might have to listen to your thoughts. And we just keep going and, and we, 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 we stay busy or maybe, maybe we numb our feelings with shopping or alcohol or sex or overwork or entertainment. But that doesn't work. It's still there. We can't shake it. It always comes back. We wonder deep down, what is wrong? Why am I like this? Am I doing enough? Am I doing this right? What am I missing? Can I even know? I don't know what to do. So where does that come from? Well, it comes because inside every human soul, there is this 
existential ache, this longing for something that is beyond, something that is more than us, something we know must be out there. And what I am telling you today is what Paul is telling you, and that is this, you need to be saved. That word, saved, implies that we are in danger. And the Bible says we are. See, we don't, we don't just need a spiritual life coach that will give us spiritual encouragement or spiritual life hacks or some handy spiritual tips. We need to be saved. But what do we need to be saved from? We need to be saved from our natural alienation and separation from God because of our rebellion against God and because of the judgment that we deserve from God we need to be saved. And it's an interesting thing. I kind of alluded to it a moment ago, but very few people talk about being saved anymore. Even a lot of Christians don't want to really talk about it because it implies some very stark things about everyone. But it is the truth. We need to be saved. This is the greatest need of every soul, and it is what every soul actually, truly longs for. Salvation is this deep and rich relational rescue between us and the living God, the God who made us, the God who loves us in Jesus. When you read the Bible, salvation is described as this glad homecoming. We are saved from sin. We're saved from God's just judgment. We're saved from darkness. We're saved from fear and regret. We're saved from alienation from other people. We're saved from a life without God, and we are saved to a life with God. We are saved to forgiveness and to love and to joy and to hope and to meaning and to purpose. We are saved to a future with God of unimaginable joy, never-ending joy. And every human being has this deep, intuitive sense that there is something more, something beyond, something out there. It's always just out of reach. And this, this deep longing for hope and meaning for, and for love, this, this longing that we all have that nothing in this world seems to satisfy. You know, when we're, when we're young, we think, you know what, by the time I'm older, I'll figure it out. Anybody here who's older that would like to tell the younger people right now that doesn't happen? We can't figure it out on our own. We always have that irrepressible longing for joy for more than what we are experiencing. There must be something else. And I think we intuitively recognize, even if we can't express it sometimes, that it really does matter how we live. And it doesn't really matter what the culture says about that because we have this sense of eternity in our hearts, like the Bible says, and it's always out of reach. C.S. Lewis once said that just as hunger can only be satisfied with food, he said just as fatigue can only be satisfied with sleep, he said these existential aches and longings can only be satisfied with salvation. It's the only answer. And that is precisely why Jesus came. He came to save. He didn't just come to encourage us, though he does. He didn't just come to be our example, though he is. He came to save He came to save. He came to save the lost, 
to save the rebellious, to save the unworthy like you and like me, to save those who feel stuck in the dark like you and like me. He came to save us from the just judgment of God. And he lived a perfect life so that our sins might be forgiven. He took our judgment on the cross so that we wouldn't have to face God's justice. He, he, he rose again to save us from death so that we could have new life. And now, when we place our trust in him, he gives us his grace and he forgives our guilt and he heals our shame and he answers our, our deepest questions. And the question that is the deepest of all that has to always be answered is, have I been saved? Have I been saved? You see, some of us may try to comfort ourselves by saying, I've been in church my whole life. I must be saved. But that does not mean you have been saved. I've been the pastor here at Southwinds. Actually, this week will be 21 years uh, since I first blessed you with my presence. Um, But for 21 years, I have watched time and time and time again, people who've been in church their whole lives get saved because God opened their eyes and they saw the truth and they repented of their sins and they trusted in Jesus and he forgave them and they got saved. See, being in church doesn't mean you're saved. See, the question the Bible challenges us with, this is what Paul is agonizing over in this verse, is have you been born again by the Spirit of God? Have you been changed on the inside? Have have you been saved? Have you gladly surrendered your life to Jesus and he is now your Lord? There's no more important question in this world for anyone to answer. And see, Paul here What's going on in this verse is it's breaking Paul's heart that his people, the Jewish people of all people, God's chosen people, they have not experienced this radical salvation that is found in Jesus alone. And so Paul's praying for them. I, I, I want to point out something you may pass over, and it's important in light of what we've been talking about. It's the significance of prayer. We've been seeing for weeks now that Paul is clear um, in Romans that God is sovereign over salvation, but notice he's still praying for their salvation. And that tells us that our prayers for the unsaved matter. I mean, just think about the things Paul's told us. He, he told us in chapter 9, verse 11, that salvation happens so that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. In chapter 9, verse 15, he says, God tell, tells us he will have mercy on who he will have mercy. God says, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 16, it says, so then it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And maybe some of you remember when you heard that a few weeks ago, you thought to yourself, well, why do we even pray if God's just going to do it all? Why do we even share the gospel with people if God's just going to do it all? It just depends on God. But notice it doesn't, Paul does not interpret that this way. Paul says, I'm praying. This tells us, that God's sovereignty and salvation doesn't preclude our responsibility. And, and that includes prayer. You say, well, why not? Well, I would give you this answer, that prayer is actually one of the means that God has ordained in his sovereignty to accomplish his purposes, including the salvation of his people. You say, I don't understand that. Okay, 
I have a shorter answer for you. You pray because God told you to pray. You obey. If you don't understand it, it doesn't matter. You're still supposed to obey. Does that make sense? And, and so our responsibilities, we've talked about, is subsumed inside, interwoven with, included in God's sovereignty. And that means that part of our responsibility is to, to pray. But I want to ask you this question. I want you to think about this. If God is not sovereign over salvation, then that would mean he is not all-powerful. That would mean he cannot ultimately save people out of the darkness of unbelief. And that would mean actually that praying for the lost is pointless if God is not sovereign over salvation. But since God is sovereign, even over the darkest unbelief, even over the hardest rebellious soul, then praying for the lost makes all the sense in the world. And so we pray I just challenge you when you look at this, does your prayer life reflect that you believe in a God who's absolutely sovereign over the darkest unbelief? Are you praying for your one or maybe more than one people in your life who need to know Jesus, who need to be saved? Are you praying with the confidence that God has the power to change their hearts and open their minds and open their eyes and to forgive them their sin, to take them away from the darkness they're in? Do you believe that he can? So don't give up praying. And then verse 2, Paul says, For I bear them witness, and again he's talking about the Jewish people, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Uh, Again, Paul is talking specifically here about his ethnic uh, Jewish brothers and sisters, but really the truth he's talking about could apply to any person. In other words, he's saying we cannot be saved any way we want. This word zeal here means to have an intense interest in or an intense dedication to God. So he's talking about people who have this genuine interest in God, but they're going about it the the wrong way. They have good intentions, but they're not doing it the way God wants them to do it. See, Paul is making something very clear that our culture needs to hear, and that sincere zeal does not mean that we know God or that we're right with God. Or to put it more bluntly, we can be sincere, but sincerely wrong. And this challenges a very common current cultural belief, right? That as long as you're sincere, you'll be okay. Don't most of the people you interact with in your daily life believe that, right? Uh, As long as you're sincere, it's going to be fine. But the Bible would tell us that truth is not measured by sincerity or by zeal or because you're really authentic. Truth is measured by what is true. So here's the truth. And look around the world. You know this is the reality. You can be a zealous professing Christian or a zealous Muslim or a zealous Hindu or a zealous Buddhist or a zealous Mormon or even a zealous atheist. The question is not ultimately about zeal. It's about truth. It's about whether our zeal is according to knowledge. Are we living by truth? See, we think in our culture that as long as our intentions are good, God's going to excuse us. I mean, haven't you talked to people and you you tell them about Jesus and they'll they'll say to you, oh, I'll be fine. 
I'll be fine. You know, over the years as a pastor, I've talked with a lot of people again and again, and you tell them about God, oh, I'll be fine. God, you know, if God, if he's there, he knows I'm doing the best I can. That guy, God, I'll be fine. He knows my heart. Yeah, that's the problem. He knows your heart. And our hearts, our hearts are not good, the Bible says. So our misdirected zeal doesn't excuse us. And here's the reality, friends. Here's what you need to know about this sincerity thing. It's a deadly lie. And this is the reason why what happens in our zeal is that our zeal actually ends up deceiving us because we think we're fine. And because we think we're fine, we actually never see our need for Jesus. We actually never draw near to Jesus. We actually never turn and receive his salvation because we think we're fine. We think we're fine. I heard someone say this last week, that zeal without knowledge is suicidal. And from an eternal perspective, that's true. That's true. Moving on to verses 3 and 4, Paul zooms in on the knowledge that zealous, unbelieving Jews and also all unbelievers, in fact, um, are missing. And what he's talking about in these two verses is what I would call the subtle snare of self-righteousness. He writes, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And this actually is the heart of the matter. This is actually where we see that difference between Christianity and every other faith. Paul says these zealous unbelievers were ignorant of the righteousness of God and it was happening then and it still happens today. He he, he states, Paul does this this problem in two different ways. He, He says, here's how it works out. First of all, they seek to establish their own righteousness, which we would just call self righteousness. Second, he says, they don't submit to God's righteousness. And those two things go hand in hand, they're two sides of the same coin. Now, I want to camp here for just a couple of minutes before we finish and talk about this issue of righteousness. What this is about, theologically, we would define it like this. Righteousness is our rightness before God, our right standing in God's presence, our acceptance or our approval from God. And we need to have this righteousness because God is holy and we are not. God is without sin and we are not. And so we, we need his righteousness. And the question that all of us deal with in our lives are how do we find that? How do we get that? And how can we be sure we have that? And every person tries one or two ways. It's either self-righteousness, by our works, by doing our best, or it's a submission to God's righteousness that's found in Jesus. That is what Paul's talking about in these two verses. These are the only two options. And that means you should be asking yourself, what path am I walking on in my life? Am I walking the path of self-righteousness? Or am I submitting to Christ's righteousness? Paul says the unbelieving Jews in, Paul, in his day were, were seeking to establish their righteousness by keeping God's law, by doing good deeds, what the scriptures revealed they should do, checking off all of the boxes, completing all the lists. 
And they thought because they were doing that, that they were good and acceptable and approved by God based on what they did. Now, lest we look at this and kind of shake our heads and think those poor misguided Jewish people who didn't really understand, lest we do that, I want to help you understand this issue of righteousness because this is not limited to them. Every single human being who's ever lived, whether they are religious or irreligious, whether they are spiritual or they're not spiritual, every person who has ever lived seeks righteousness. And the reason we do is that we were created in God's image and we have to know, we've got to know whether or not we are accepted by the one who made us, whether or not the one who created us approves of us. We have to do that. We don't even have to think about it. It is just the default reaction of the human soul. Maybe you hear that and you say, I'm not sure I see it. Well, that's probably because you're thinking of righteousness in too narrow a sense. Let me explain it to you. It starts with the fact that we are made in the image of God. And therefore, because of that, every human being, every one of us, we long to be loved and to be known and to be accepted as we are. That can only happen when we meet God in Jesus. And until we experience that, we will try to establish our righteousness through our efforts. You say, how do you do that? Well, let me give you some examples. There are many, many forms. One would be maybe called education righteousness. In other words, you say, I'm okay. And I'm acceptable because I have the right schooling, because I have the right credentials, because I have earned and demonstrated the right expertise. There is physical righteousness. You would say, I am okay because I am attractive, I am fit, I am fashionable. People admire me when they look at me. Then there's money righteousness. Some of you say, I am okay because I am worth a lot of money. Then... There is comparison righteousness. Some of you say, I'm okay because I'm looking around at this crowd. I am better than they are. I am better than him. I am better than her. There's achievement righteousness. You say, if you have this, I'm okay because I have a great resume. I have a great network. You should look at my LinkedIn profile. It's amazing. That's achievement righteousness. Then there's cause righteousness. Some of you do this. You're you're like, I'm finding the right cause. I'm fighting for justice. I'm on the right side of history. All kinds of righteousness. I heard recently another pastor tell a story about how he was talking with a guy who'd become a friend um, in his experience of pastoring this church. This guy had a really rough past. He, he, he said this guy spent a good amount of time in jail. And he, he said he was talking to this guy one time and the guy said, yeah, I spent a lot of time in jail, but at least it wasn't prison. <coughs> and the pastor said, what? Like, Those are the same things, aren't they? Oh, no, 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 no. Not the same thing at all. Prison is way, way worse. I spent so much time in jail. Yeah, but not prison. I'm not that bad. And the pastor said he discovered in that conversation that there's such a thing as jail righteousness. (laughs) 
I myself uh, similarly learned a few years ago that uh, people in prison, talking to someone who'd been in prison, that people in prison have their own hierarchy. And he told me that people who have murdered someone will always think that they are better than the child molesters. You see, there's all kinds of righteousness. No matter how high you climb the ladder, no matter how low on the social spectrum you find yourself, we are hardwired as human beings to show and think that somehow we are okay, we are acceptable, and we establish our righteousness any way we can. You do it. Everyone does it. There are no exceptions. No exceptions. What's the alternative? Well, it's right there in verse 4. We rest in Christ's righteousness. And we do that because Christ is the end of the law. He's the goal of the law for everyone who believes. In other words, it is only Jesus who gives us what we're looking for, who gives us what we most desperately need. Jesus' righteousness. Now, we're going to talk more about this next week as we continue working through Romans 10. But Christ's righteousness is what God gives to us, imputes to us by faith in Jesus alone. And when we trust in Jesus, God gives us that righteousness. It is a gift. And we don't have to keep searching anymore. We don't have to keep wondering anymore. We don't have to keep looking for whatever we think there might be out there somehow. If we can just find it, because we have found it, we find it in Jesus Christ, in Jesus alone. So submitting to the righteousness of Christ means we throw away chasing self-righteousness and we trust in the gift of righteousness that Jesus gives us, not in any kind of rewards that we can earn ourselves. Just think about this as we close. Why would God do this? What, what kind of God would do this? Do, do you see how different this is from every other belief system? Why would, why would God give righteousness to us rather than call us to try to earn it like everyone else does? And here's the answer, because our God, Jesus, loves to love the unworthy. He loves to save those who don't deserve it. He, he loves uh, that salvation can come to people like us and can make us worthy and make us loved. See, if you're just hearing this for the first time, you may be asking, are you saying this is all I need to do is receive this gift? Answer, yes, that's all. Nothing more. Don't I need to do anything? No, just receive it. Surely I have to do something. Well, this is what makes Christianity different from every other belief system. In fact, Jesus himself said this. This is John 6, 29. You can look it up. Jesus said, this is the work of God. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. You believe. That's all you do. You, you believe in Jesus whom the father has sent. And when you do that, it means you let go of any self-righteousness you're clinging to. You repent of that. You turn from that and you submit to Christ's righteousness. Jesus has done everything that's needed to be done. Amen? All we do is receive it. And if you haven't ever received it, will you do that today? That's God's call to us. Would you bow your heads?
Father God, we ask as we hear these words that you would forgive us for whenever we trust in our self-righteousness. Lord, we ask that you would help us to see where we might be doing that even unintentionally. Lord, would you take us to the cross and remind us again that Jesus alone is our righteousness. Lord, we know we don't deserve your righteousness and we just thank you that you have taken us who felt not loved or who felt like we were not your people and you have loved us and you have adopted us as your sons and daughters. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for loving us first and most. We just ask for your grace in the days that are ahead to work out in our lives these truths that you have taught us today, to understand them more deeply, to live in them, Lord, more richly. And we do it all because we love you and because you have loved us. So, Lord, we pray these things in Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone. And all God's people say,